I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, and welcome to our fifth episode. I'm Yoke Boy, talking to you from England. And I'm Lady Guinevere, here in Boston. And this episode is all about the very popular RLJ theory, Rhaegar plus Lyanna equals John. Yes, the most famous and well-trodden A Song of Ice and Fire theory of them all. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge the thousands of A Song of Ice and Fire fans that have contributed their ideas and research to this theory. We see it as a kind of triumph of the fandom across so many different boards and blogs and so on that so many people have had input into this theory one way or another. Yeah, we've decided to present this theory. We wanted to bring it to the audio medium because it's so central to these books. And we want to do this as interestingly and as thoroughly as possible. But as we said, the majority of what we'll be discussing comes from the fandom. Too many people to credit, and we're not even sure how this theory evolved. So, we'll be presenting our LJ, and we do have some additional ideas and thoughts of our own that we'll be sharing too. We just wanted to say that within the fandom, even among RLJ believers, there's still many contentious issues and interpretations, so we're not going to try and force any kind of consensus, just giving our own take. Anyway, here's what we'll be looking at today. Right, so we'll start with a brief overview of the theory before launching into more advanced territory. Yeah, then we'll have discussions on the Night of the Laughing Tree, Blue Roses, uh, similarities between John and Rhaegar and Lyanna, the Tower of Joy, Ned's thoughts about Rhaegar, and a look at what a song of ice and fire might actually mean. And then we've got an idea as to why RLJ might be so important in the greater scheme of this story. And as ever, we have a song from the fandom, pseudo-adverts from Westeros, and two readings set to specially arranged music. Yes, we do. And also a quick shout out to the RLJ thread at westeros.org who by now should have hit 100 iterations of their thread. Yeah, congratulations. I've spent many hours there myself, and what we're doing here today is really in the spirit of that RLJ thread. Right, and we have another special guest today, our second, to help present John's similarities with Rhaegar and Lyanna, a seasoned RLJ poster who we like a lot called Egrain will be joining us. Yeah, we have Egrain for a guest slot and also another poster called Mountain Lion has provided us with some research for our Tower of Joy discussion. So stay with us and enjoy the episode. <laughs> 
Hi, my name's Igraine, and I'll be joining your boy to talk about John, Liana, and Rhaegar later in the episode. So stay tuned. So we can probably assume that the idea of Rhaegar plus Liana equals John is understood, if not accepted, by the majority of A Song of Ice and Fire fans. Most likely, yes, but we probably shouldn't assume that everyone knows the sequence of clues that have led to this being one of the most widely accepted fan theories on the internet. Right, and that's why we now want to do a quick rundown of the basics before we get into more advanced territory. And so let's start with Jon Snow. Yeah, he's introduced to us as Ned Stark's bastard son. But in fact, Ned never thinks of Jon as his son. On one occasion in Bran's point of view, he refers to Jon and Rob as his sons to Jory. But in his own thoughts, he thinks of Jon merely by name. Particularly in this scene with the godswood with Cersei, when she asks him if he loves his children, he thinks to himself... If it came to that, the life of some child I did not know against Rob and Sansa and Arya and Bran and Rickon, what would I do? And notice, John is not on the list. Yeah, that's right. There's no John on the list there. And that's really significant because this is an internal thought. This is an internal monologue. He could have thought of John as his son right there, but he just doesn't. And that's just the most obvious example. So assuming we've established doubt of Ned as John's father... Let's take a look at the mother. Okay, so three women are mentioned in connection with Ned's so-called bastard. Wyla, Ashara Dane, and the fisherman's daughter from the sisters. So Lord Godric Burrell actually names the child of the fisherman's daughter as Jon Snow, but the timeline seems to rule her out and indicate that she's no more than a cleverly placed red herring. Basically, the timing just isn't quite right. Lord Godric's story is from the early days in the rebellion, which we know from George went on for nearly a year. But we also know from George that John is a mere eight or nine months older than Danny, who herself was born nine months after the sack of King's Landing. So, unless the fisherman's daughter carried a child for nearly a year, that seems to make her an impossibility as John's mother. Okay, so another candidate is Ashara Dane. She's mentioned by Cat, but it seems clear that Cat was responding to gossip from soldiers heard via her maidservants. Ned becomes angry and tells her never to ask about John. He is my blood, he says. Yeah, he is my blood, and really that's another odd reference. Why not just say, he is my son? The only other mentions of Ashara in connection with Ned are in the Night of the Laughing Tree story, where he was apparently too shy to ask her to dance at the tourney of Harrenhal, and by Edric Dane, who tells Arya that her father loved his long-dead aunt. And while some might argue that gives credence to Ashara being John's mother... We should remember that in the same breath, Edric Dane tells Arya that his one-time wet nurse, Wyla, is her brother John's mother. And Wyla, this is who Robert thinks is Ned's bastard's mother. But Ned himself never thinks of her as John's mother and coldly dismisses Robert's inquiries on the subject. And there appears to be absolutely no plausible reason for hiding the identity of a lowborn woman, if indeed that is all John's mother was. And as for Liana, she died mysteriously around a year after being allegedly kidnapped by Rhaegar. We know that Ned found her feverish and in a bed of blood, a term used repeatedly and exclusively throughout the text to indicate childbirth, and that Liana demanded a significant promise from Ned before she died. 
Yes, the promise. It's referred to at least half a dozen times in Ned's point of view, and actually might be multiple promises, as in this passage. He thought of the promises he'd made to Lyanna as she lay dying, and the price he'd paid to keep them. Right, so it's clear that Ned made a promise or promises to his dying sister on a deathbed, and that he's kept it a secret all this time. Like in this quote, Troubled sleep was no stranger to him. He had lived his lies for 14 years, yet they still haunted him at night. So we have the promises linked to Liana and a secret. Yes, there's also an interesting link between promises, Liana, and Blue Winter Roses, something we'll be looking at more closely in a little bit. And we'll also be looking at more textual hints that John could be her son. So now let's look at Rhaegar as the father. We know Liana vanished with him. Now, Robert assumed she was raped by him, but many other point of views seem to indicate that he loved her, or at least had some romantic attraction to her. We have Danny, who repeatedly thinks that her brother died for the woman he loved. Kevin Lannister, thinking that had Cersei married Rhaegar, he might never have looked twice at Lyanna Stark. And Barristan, thinking how Rhaegar loved his lady Lyanna and thousands died for it. And of course, there's Ned, who never once has a negative thought about the man who allegedly kidnapped and raped his sister. So the conclusion that the RLJ theory makes is that Liana died after giving birth to a child and that Rhaegar, being the man who had carried her off, is the father and that Ned has spent the last 14 years passing off this child as his own. But it's a huge secret. Many people wonder why Ned wouldn't at least tell the truth to Caitlin since she's got such an obvious problem with John. And this brings us back to Ned's thoughts about secrets. Some secrets are safer kept hidden. Some secrets are too dangerous to share, even with those you love and trust. And that's what Ned thinks to himself. So John's true identity would be an absolutely huge liability in this kingdom ruled by a king who's cemented his reign, really, with the murder of two Targaryen children. And clearly he still continues to despise the Targaryens. Right. Okay, so now that we've addressed the basics of the theory, why don't we take a detailed look now at some of the elements of it, starting with how on earth Lyanna ever came to Rhaegar's attention in the first place. The she-wolf laid into the squires with a tourney sword, scattering them all. So, as far as we know, the first time Lyanna and Rhaegar actually came into contact was at the Tawny of Harrenhal. A lot of what we know about the Tawny comes from the story Mira tells Bran, which is framed by the tale of a little Kranagman who we're led to believe is her father, Howland. Yes, but within that story is the tale of a mystery knight who many believe was Lyanna Stark. The identity of the Knight of the Laughing Tree is really the central mystery here, and we're going to look at many of the clues that it might be Lyanna and seek out its implications to the RLJ theory. And one of the big clues that this story is really a Stark story comes from Jojen, who thinks Bran must have heard it before. In fact, he repeats that idea three times. Right, meaning he thinks this story has some significance to the Stark family. Yeah, and one of the first things we learn about the Tawny is that both Ares and Rhaegar were present. 
Mira goes on to list others who were there and then establishes Liana as central to the story. Yeah, Mira tells Bran about the Cranigman getting beat up by three squires, only to be rescued by a she-wolf. The passage goes, They shoved him down every time he tried to rise and kicked him when he curled up on the ground. But then they heard a roar. That's my father's man you're kicking, howled the she-wolf. The she-wolf laid into the squires with a tourney sword, scattering them all. Right, so the she-wolf brings the Cranagman back to her lair, where she meets her pack, described as the wild wolf, the quiet wolf, and the pup. And that's Brandon, Ned, and Benjamin, respectively. That night at the feast, they all made note of the three squires, and Benjamin offered Howland a chance at some revenge. I could find your horse and some armour that might fit, the pup offered. Right, meaning that Benjamin felt he could outfit a knight for jousting on short notice. It's also worth noting that Rhaegar played a song at the feast that made Lyanna cry the first time, chronologically, that the two are mentioned together, right here. The dragon prince sang a song so sad it made the wolf maid sniffle. And the next thing that Mira says is how a mystery knight appeared in the lists the next day. Described here, the mystery knight was short of stature and clad in ill-fitting armour made up of bits and pieces. The device upon his shield was a heart tree of the old gods, a white weirwood with a laughing red face. So the short stature and mismatched armour makes the mind turn to Howland since we have Benjen's offer and Bran's certainty here. He says, it was the little Cranigman, I bet. Yeah, he does. But we should know by now that George doesn't create mysteries and then spell out the solutions right away for us. Also, there's this passage from earlier after Benjamin offered to outfit him with the armour. The lad was no knight, no more than any of his people. We sit a boat more often than a horse, and our hands are made for oars, not lances. So let's look at the actual jousting after the mystery knight challenged the three knights whom the squires that had attacked Howland served. The old gods gave strength to his arm. The porcupine knight fell first, then the pitchfork knight, and lastly the knight of the two towers. When his fallen foes sought to ransom horse and armor, the knight of the laughing tree spoke in a booming voice through his helm, saying, Teach your squires honor, that shall be ransom enough. And going by how quickly the Knight of the Laughing Tree was able to defeat his opponents, it hardly makes sense that it was Howland, who was no knight and didn't have experience with horses or lances. In fact, the only boxes he ticks are his short stature and motivation to take some revenge. Exactly, but if we look at Lyanna, we see that she ticks all the boxes. First, we know that she played at swords with her younger brother from Bran's vision of the past. And we can assume that this was some kind of secret play, since Ned has told Arya, Lyanna might have carried a sword if my lord father had allowed it. Right, and Lord Rickard didn't allow it, so Benjamin must have been in on her secret. This is important because it shows a history of Lyanna and Benjamin having a secret together, and he's the one who offered to find a horse and armour for Howland. Once Howland turned him down, it's possible that Benjamin carried out the plan with his sister. Yeah, and of course, both those things also underscore Lyanna's talent for fighting, with a blade rather than a lance, but we know something rather important about jousting from Jamie. Jousting was three-quarters horsemanship, Jamie had always believed. Yeah, and of course we know that Lyanna was well known for her horsemanship, from Harwin, who said to Arya, 
You ride like a Northman, my lady. Your aunt was the same, Lady Liana. And also from Barbary Dusting telling Theon about Brandon. He loved to ride. His little sister took after him in that. A pair of centaurs, those two. A centaur, right. Well, there are two other significant details to take from the story itself. First, we're told, Barristan the Bold donned a mystery knight's armour the first time when he was only ten. Yeah, and this seems like it establishes the ability of a small, young and untrained person who has a bit of natural skill to joust. It seems like placed information from George here. Yes, it does. And then we have the Knight of the Laughing Tree's booming voice, often used to question if the knight could have been a girl. Well, we need look no further than Brienne in Clash. The blue knight knelt before the king. Grace, he said, his voice muffled by his dented great helm. Right, and when Renly tells Cat that the blue knight is a maiden, she just can't believe it. And low bass sound travels through material very well, whereas high frequencies just don't. That's why you just hear bass outside of a nightclub, for example. So making your voice boom through a solid metal helm, which would naturally resonate anyway due to its shape, would be easy to do. Yeah, that seems logical, and Yokeboy does know about sound. And so uh, what happens next is the Night of the Laughing Tree disappears. Here's the passage. The next morning, when the heralds blew their trumpets and the king took his seat, only two champions appeared. The Knight of the Laughing Tree had vanished. The king was wroth and even sent his son, the Dragon Prince, to seek the man. But all they ever found was his painted shield hanging abandoned in a tree. It was the Dragon Prince who won that tourney in the end. Right, and that's really interesting because it sets up Rhaegar winning the tourney, but it also introduces the possibility they actually unmasked Lyanna. Yeah, and if Lyanna was the Knight of the Laughing Tree and Rhaegar set out to unmask the knight... What might have happened if he found her? Well, if he found her, we can speculate that if he had unmasked her after discovering she was a highborn maiden, he might have wished to protect her from his paranoid pyromaniac father. (laughs) He might have also developed a great respect for her in standing up for Howland. So finding Liana and possibly wanting to subtly honour her may have led to the next act in the story. Right. Remember at the end of Mira's tale, Bran says, the mystery knight should win the tourney, defeating every challenger, and name the wolf maid the queen of love and beauty. And Mira replies, she was, but that's a sadder story. Yeah, and this leads us into our first reading of the episode, a passage from Ned's POV. And this is where we first learn about the tourney of Harrenhal and what Rhaegar did after winning the tourney. This is the moment when all the smiles died. The memory came creeping upon him in the darkness, as vivid as a dream. It was the year of the false spring, and he was eighteen again, down from the eyrie to the tourney at Harrenhal. He could see the deep green of the grass and smell the pollen on the wind. Warm days and cool nights and the sweet taste of wine. He remembered Brandon's laughter and Robert's berserk valor in the melee, the way he laughed as he unhorsed men left and right. He remembered Jamie Lannister, a golden youth in scaled white armor, kneeling on the grass in front of the king's pavilion and making his vows to protect and defend King Aerys. Afterwards, Sir Oswell went to help Jamie to his feet, and the White Bull himself, Lord Commander Sir Gerald Hightower, fastened the snowy cloak of the king's guard about his shoulders. All six white swords were there to welcome their newest brother. 
Yet when the jousting began, the day belonged to Rhaegar Targaryen. The crown prince wore the armor he would die in, gleaming black plate with the three-headed dragon of his house brought in rubies on the breast. A plume of scarlet silk streamed behind him when he rode, and it seemed no lance could touch him. Brandon fell to him, and Bronzion Royce, and even the splendid Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning. Robert had been jesting with John and Old Lord Hunter as the prince circled the field after unhorsing Sir Barristan in the final tilt to claim the champion's crown. Ned remembered the moment when all the smiles died, when Prince Rhaegar Targaryen urged his horse past his own wife, the Dornish princess Elia Martell, to lay the Queen of Beauty's laurel in Lyanna's lap. He could see it still, a crown of winter roses, blue as frost. So that passage is from a dream Ned has while he's imprisoned in the black cells, and it's really important to the RLJ theory. Yes, it is. It introduces a possible romantic element to the Rhaegar and Lyanna story, and also ties in nicely to what we were discussing in the last segment. Right, the idea that Rhaegar might have unmasked Lyanna as the Knight of the Laughing Tree, and this could have given them a window for flirtation, and a spark for mutual attraction perhaps, if and when he found her. If they had developed a romantic attraction of some kind, it's further cause for Rhaegar to want to honour her in some way. Yeah, remember Bran's conviction that the Mystery Knight should have won the tourney? Well, if Lyanna was the Knight of the Laughing Tree, in a sense she did, though in a very different way, and of course, as Mira indicated, the end of the story is rather sad. Well, the passage also gives us a huge clue as to the link between Liana and Blue Roses. That link is established earlier in Ned's Tower of Joy dream, which is in the aftermath of Jamie's ambush. Right, and we'll be looking closely at that dream a little later on, by the way. But for this purpose, let's look at the first line and the last. The first, he dreamt an old dream of three knights in white cloaks, and a tower long fallen, and Lyanna in her bed of blood. And the last, a storm of rose petals blew across a blood-streaked sky as blue as the eyes of death. So we think it's very interesting that not only are blue roses linked to Lyanna, but also in most cases with blood and promises. Right. Ned has another dream, the day Robert returns from the Kingswood with his fatal wound. He's in the crypts of Winterfell and sees Lyanna's statue. Here's the quote. Promise me, Ned, Lyanna's statue whispered. She wore a garland of pale blue roses and her eyes wept blood. And then the black sail dream continues with this passage. Ned Stark reached out his hand to grasp the flowery crown, but beneath the pale blue petals, the thorns lay hidden. He felt them clawing at his skin, sharp and cruel, saw the slow trickle of blood run down his fingers, and woke trembling in the dark. Promise me, Ned, his sister had whispered from her bed of blood. She had loved the scent of winter roses. Hmm. So, if we go all the way back to the Winterfell Crips and Ned's first point of view, we have this memory. Promise me, she had cried, in a room that smelled of blood and roses. Promise me, Ned. The fever had taken her strength, and her voice had been faint as a whisper, but when he gave her his word, the fear had gone out of his sister's eyes. 
Ned remembered the way she had smiled then, how tightly her fingers had clutched his as she gave up her hold on life, the rose petals spilling from her palm, dead and black. So what we've noticed that in Ned's point of view, every blue rose that links to Liana also involves promises, blood or both. A final example is in Theon's dream, seeing a slim, sad girl who wore a crown of pale blue roses and a white gown splattered with gore. Who could only be Lyanna. Mm, yeah, that's very interesting. Ned heavily associates Lyanna, blue roses, promises and blood, and it seems like George is trying to tell us something. What's really curious is that the association begins with Rhaegar giving Lyanna blue roses, as we saw in the reading. Yeah, so overall the blue rose seems to symbolise the union between Rhaegar and Lyanna. Given that RLJ asserts John is the direct product of that union, the blue rose can be applied as a metaphor for John himself. Right, something Rhaegar has given her as he gave her the original crown. And, of course, the blood and promises would indicate Lyanna's death and the promise Ned made to her, both of which directly relate to John, according to RLJ. So, extending the blue rose symbolism slightly beyond Rhaegar and Lyanna, and attributing it to John, we see another blue rose in Danny's vision in the House of the Undying. A blue flower grew from a chink in the Wall of Ice, and then later Jura asserts that this blue flower was in fact a blue rose. And that blue rose again fits John very well with the wall being made of ice. So that's our brief take on blue roses. And if you fancy reading a more in-depth look at blue roses, Google Jon Snow and the Blue Winter Rosetta Stone, where a poster called Jay Stagarian has done some really good writing and analysis on the subject. And before we move on, here's a message from today's sponsors. Do you need a last minute gift? Are you trying to reward that go-getter for a job well done or simply trying to get her attention? Whether you're trying to give your father a paranoid fit or ruining the day for thousands of tourney-goers, including your wife, family, half the lords of the kingdom and a clueless maiden you're trying to impress, Tyrell Gardens can meet your every need. We specialise in flowers for all occasions as well as the rare blue winter rose, which is the epitome of all things unattainable and fatal. Tyrell Gardens, for the blue roses you're always dreaming of. Free blue rose delivery to isolated towers in the Dornish Mountains. And there's a message from today's sponsors, and thanks to Alia of the Knife for sending that script in to us. And so, Lady Gwyn, is it cold enough to grow blue winter roses where you live? Yo, boy, winter is always coming here in Boston. Right. It's like the lands of always winter here. <laughs> well, it's like the lands of uh, always pissing it down here, actually, Lady Gwyn. <laughs> okay. Right, let's move on. So we're going to look at the supposed kidnapping of Liana by Rhaegar. Among fans, some people think that Rhaegar did capture Liana, maybe to fulfil a prophecy. Yeah, and others think Lyanna may have gone willingly to escape her proposed marriage to Robert. There isn't a huge consensus on whether Rhaegar was a villain or a hero here. In fact, just the opposite. Right, and we're leaning towards there being more to the story with this one. And we'll discuss later why we think Rhaegar perhaps might have been more of a kind of decent guy than some people might give him credit for at this stage. 
George has indicated that more information will come out about the circumstances of this supposed kidnapping, and Lady Gwyn has an idea on the subject that we're going to throw out there. Yes, I do, though I should say that recently I've seen similar ideas raised by other fans. Now, some time ago I realized that it seems very unlikely that the Mad King would just let go of his paranoia over the Night of the Laughing Tree. Yeah, he wasn't known as the Mad King for no reason. He was paranoid, and his favourite method of punishment was burning people alive, wasn't it? Yeah, the King's justice was fire, and that's important to my train of thought. So we've speculated that Rhaegar unmasked Lyanna and protected her from his father at the tourney, honouring her as the Queen of Love and Beauty in a subtle nod to the courage and chivalry that she showed by standing up for Howland. But what if it wasn't so subtle? What if Ares noticed and was able to put all the pieces together? Or what if someone told him? Mm, and remember what Doran said. Someone always tells. Exactly. So skipping over those possibilities, let's assume for the moment that the Mad King did discover the identity of the Knight of the Laughing Tree. What would he do? Well, knowing Ares, it seems very likely that he would want to bring his own brand of justice to the situation. Right, and of course, we mentioned Ares' justice was fire. And what made me first consider this kidnapping idea was noticing while doing some Arthurian research that in one branch of the legend, Queen Guinevere was sentenced to death for a crime against the king. It was adultery in the legend, but what's important here is the crime against the crown. She was sentenced to burn, but Lancelot arrived at the last minute and carried her away to safety at his castle, which is called Joyous Guard. Now, I've been writing about parallels between Rhaegar and Lancelot when it struck me. Joyous Guard is really similar in context to Tower of Joy. Yeah, it sounds like it, doesn't it? Doesn't it? All right, so then the pieces kind of clicked. A king, a crime, punishment by fire, and a rescue... So what if the kidnapping was really a rescue? Yeah, it's definitely worth considering this idea, and it seems like a logical progression to the story. It also answers a lot of questions. Right, like the suddenness of Rhaegar's actions, if we go by the commonly accepted timeline that the kidnapping occurred shortly after Aegon's birth, and if we assume he didn't have time to alert all of her family, we get a possible explanation for Brandon's rash response as well. Yeah, there are question marks about Brandon's reaction. It might even explain why Lord Rickard doesn't appear to have demanded his daughter back when he arrived in King's Landing. He might have been notified by Rhaegar or an associate, and at that point was trying to mitigate the actions of his son and perhaps prevent hostilities from breaking out. Yeah, really. So, okay, let's say this was a possibility. How did it work? What was the goal? And what went wrong? So we've thought about this and we realised that Rhaegar would have known full well in this scenario that his father Ares, seizing the daughter of a Lord Paramount and one as well connected as someone like Rickard Stark, would mean most likely open war in the Seven Kingdoms. This could be in part what he was referring to when he said to Jamie, when this battle's done, I mean to call a council. Changes will be made. I meant to do it long ago, but it does no good to speak of roads not taken. 
Right. He said that to Jamie just before leaving for the Trident. And Rhaegar may have initially been trying to stop his father's downward spiral, maybe spirit the girl to safety in secret and then deal with Ares by calling a great council. But perhaps what went wrong is that Rhaegar could have never factored in for Brandon's rash reaction to this situation. And Brandon was known to be a bit of a hothead. And, you know, perhaps that is what went wrong. Well, I think that's exactly what went wrong. By the time Rhaegar got Lyanna to safety and had time to hear news from King's Landing, it might have been too late. Like, Brandon and Rickard might have been dead already, with his father calling for Ned's and Robert's heads. Eris could have been furious with his son in King's Guards as well. Yeah, it seems like he might have been. So this leaves, you know, the practical implications. How do you see the kidnapping or rescue having happened? Well, it seems like Lyanna was on her way to River Run for her brother's upcoming wedding. Maybe she was planning to head to Storm's End for her own afterwards. We know Ned and Robert were in the Vale. Possibly they were intending to head to the Riverlands themselves. Lord Rickard appears to have been en route from Winterfell South with his men in company. And Brandon was at River Run, but left on an errand, which I suspect was to go meet his sister and return with her to the Tully home. So I wonder about the inn at the crossroads. Okay, so the crossroads, a symbol of choices, meetings, and also fateful decisions. And interestingly enough, the inn at the crossroads is the site of another high-profile kidnapping, cat seizure of Tyrion. Yes, another fateful decision that led to open hostilities in Westeros. And of course, in that case, we had onlookers in the inn who rushed to tell the family of the kidnappee what had happened. This could be the explanation for Brandon's headlong rush to King's Landing. Hearing a story of knights with swords seizing his sister and making off with her, it would have looked like a kidnapping. Especially if we introduced the possibility that Ares' soldiers were also present and there was some kind of fight. Yeah, if there were soldiers there, it might look like conflict, whether there was fighting or not. So that's Lady Gwyn's idea that Rhaegar rescued Lyanna from the King's Justice at the Inn at the Crossroads. And now, in this next segment, we have a special guest joining us via the fan forums at westeros.org. Egrain is a regular contributor there, well known for her writing and analysis of issues surrounding RLJ. A veteran of dozens of RLJ-dedicated threads, not to mention countless Tower of Joy and related discussions, Egrain has really impressed us here with her sharp literary analysis as well as her wit and devotion to the topic. We're pleased to welcome her as a second guest on the show and are extremely grateful to her for preparing the notes and quotes for this next segment, where we'll be looking at the textual hints of John's similarities to Rhaegar and Lyanna. So, welcome Egrain. Well, first and foremost, thanks for inviting me. I must say that I'm more than just a little complimented and really glad to take part in your project. It's something I've never done before. And thanks so much for joining us today. Before we get started, I wonder if you could tell us what it is about RLJ that keeps you coming back to the discussion. The mystery. I can't resist the challenge. Uh, I think we all like mysteries. And is RLJ something you picked up on quickly as a reader? Or did you discover it on the internet as so many others have? The first reading sent some bells ringing. So I dug into it some more and pieced it together. Right. 
Well, let's move on to our discussion about John's similarities with his proposed parents. You've done quite a bit of analysis here, pulling quotes from the text and tying them together with logical analysis that leaves us with a pretty convincing picture, I think. So, from the beginning, we're told repeatedly that John looks like a stock to a T with a solemn long face and brown hair. He and Arya are the only ones said to have inherited the stark look among Ned's children. That's right, Arya's POVs. We learn that she took after their lord father. Her hair was a lustreless brown and her face was long and solemn. And also, John had their father's face as she did. They were the only ones. Right. While Sansa tells us that Arya even looked like John with the long face and brown hair of the Starks, from Cat we learn that John is basically a carbon copy of the Ned, which makes the story of him being Ned's bastard so plausible and a bitter pill to swallow. Yeah, Cat thinks John was never out of sight, and as he grew, he looked more like Ned than any of the trueborn sons she bore him. And Ned himself thinks how much John looks like him. Ned saw Jon Snow's face in front of him, so like a younger version of his own. So there is little wonder, then, that even Tyrion's sharp mind arrives at a logical conclusion. Right, Tyrion thinks he had the stark face, if not the name, long, solemn, guarded, a face that gave nothing away. Whoever his mother had been, she had left little of herself in her son. Perhaps George was smirking away as he wrote that. <laughs> so, for all this hammering the reader's heads with John looks like Ned, there is another slight aspect, carefully laid pages and pages away, and phrased in a way that doesn't ring a bell immediately. Yeah, Ned tells Arya, Lyanna might have carried a sword if my lord father had allowed it. You remind me of her sometimes. You even look like her. In other words, if Arya looks like Lyanna, and John looks like Arya, he looks like Lyanna as well. Mm -hmm. They all share the iconic Stark look, but the comparison between John and Lyanna is never made directly. Yeah, never made directly. That's uh, strange, isn't it? So, right, interestingly, in the same passage, we also learn something about Lyanna's looks. Lyanna was beautiful. Yeah, we know from later on POVs that Arya is indeed growing to be a beauty, while, by contrast, Ned's face was a bit of a disappointment to Kathleen when they first met. <laughs> yeah, she found him, quote, plain in comparison to his dashing older brother, didn't she? Right. However, from Egret's reaction, it is clear that John's face was a bit more interesting than that. She actually refers to his face as sweet when he gets injured by Aurel's eagle. Now, concerning Liana's personality, there is not much we learn. In her brother's POV, her characteristics are given in a single phrase, beautiful and willful and dead before her time. We all hope that John won't be dead before his time, I think, even despite the Dance with Dragons cliffhanger. But is he willful, or as Mira might put it, not easy to refuse? I think some would heartily agree. Mostly the same who might speak at length about his outrageous lack of respect for authorities. Yes, take this passage from Game of Thrones. Alice Thorne overheard him. Jon Snow wants to take my place now, he sneered. I'd have an easier time teaching a wolf to juggle than you will training these aurochs. I'll take that wager, Sir Alice, Jon said. I'd love to see ghosts juggle. And then there is an exchange later on with Janus Slint 
Rosalind tells John, Sir Alistair had your measure true enough, it seems. You lie through your bastard teeth. Did you think my skull was stuffed with scabbage? <laughs> yeah, and John's reply is, I don't know what your skull is stuffed with, my lord. So, the sharp tongue definitely doesn't come from Ned, nor does the attitude, which rather resembles Arya's. Yeah, he tells Robert, you never knew Lyanna as I did. You saw her beauty, but not the iron underneath. Yeah, and this actually goes hand in hand with Lyanna's notion of doing the right thing and standing up to defend the weak, even when outnumbered as in her defense of the little Cranog men at the tourney of Harrenhal. Right, Mira tells us that there were three squires older than she, and that the she-wolf laid into them with a tourney sword, scattering them all. Exactly. And in Lyanna's spirit, John takes up the defense of Sam and lays into the other Nightwatch recruits with his steel. Mm -hmm. Sir Alistair might even be able to confirm that John has quite a temper and that his rash actions might have similar consequences to those of Lyanna's wolf blood. And though we never hear that John would sniffle over sad songs, he is certainly guilty of some romantic preconceptions prior joining the Watch. Right. So now that we have established that, contrary to Tyrion's belief, that John actually resembles his proposed mother quite a lot, are there some ways in which he took after Rhaegar as well? Well... John seemingly has nothing of the iconic Targ look, being a Stark all and through, yet there is something that is never mentioned in the description of Ned or Arya. Eyes so dark grey that they look black. And we know of another colour which looks almost black in a particular lighting, don't we? Yeah, purple. Mm -hmm. From a very close source, we know that it takes a close look to distinguish the colour correctly. Sadly, we do not have Egret's POV to verify if this method of establishing eye color works in the northern sun as well. We can only add a piece of information from Dennis' POV that Rhaegar's eyes were indeed darker than the usual Targaryen purple. Right, and this is interesting. From her vision of Rhaegar in the House of the Undying, we learn that he had Viserys hair, but he was taller and his eyes were a dark indigo rather than lilac. Yeah. Looking at John's physique, we know from the comparison with Rob that he is slender, graceful, and quick. If Arya's initial skinniness is anything to go by, the lighter build might be a stark trait, but it's definitely in line with the Targaryen body type too, as they are never noted for being particularly muscular. Doesn't the same apply to John's general gloominess, which we can relate to Starks as well as Rhaegar. And while his initial tendency to be moody and sulking may come from being a teenager, we do see some other characteristics of Rhaegar's that John is the embodiment of. Yes, namely, Rhaegar's description as determined, deliberate, dutiful, single-minded fits John's actions very well. Right, and once John gets over his initial disappointment with the watch, he takes a sense of duty very much to heart, even when facing the harsh test with the wildlings, when Corin's order never to balk from anything pushes the limits further and further. Indeed, and through his growth as a Lord Commander, he always pursues the single goal of protecting the realms of men from the real threat, even if he has to ruffle some feathers and upset traditions. It seems almost a family trait here, 
that for his actions he receives a backlash which he never saw coming. Yeah, a backlash in the form of a backstab. <laughs> yeah, that. But on the other hand, despite making himself bitter enemies, John is capable of inspiring admiration and great loyalty in his friends, just like Rhaegar. Yeah, John seems to be his proposed father's son, not just in mind and actions, but also in his talents as well. Besides singing, something we've never seen from John, another notable trait of Rhaegar's was his intelligence and general aptitude. Right, Beristan tells us, Prince Rhaegar's prowess was unquestioned, but he seldom entered the lists. He never loved the Song of Swords the way that Robert did or Jamie Lannister. It was something he had to do, a task the world had set him. He did it well, for he did everything well. That was his nature. Yeah, it is also curious. John is not particularly keen on fighting, even though he's quite good at it, really. True. And we also know that he is perceptive and usually has a good grasp of situation, but he doesn't have much space to show his other skills. We also learn from a casual recollection in his own POV that he pretty much excelled in a variety of subjects. Yeah, here he is thinking of cats. It was not Lord Eddard's face he saw floating before him, though. It was Lady Caitlin's. With her deep blue eyes and hard, cold mouth, she looked a bit like Stannis. Iron, he thought, but brittle. She was looking at him the way she used to look at him at Winterfell whenever he had bested Rob at swords or sums or most anything. So, taken all together, we do have a pretty convincing series of hints in the text that John, like any child, has a number of similarities with both his proposed parents. And what's quite interesting is that the similarities are both physical and intangible. Yeah, they do seem to cover a lot of ground. And many of the things we discussed are so cleverly hidden, using chains of quotes and similar language to form connections. So George might be using numerous techniques from direct hints to a lot more indirect, discrete hints here. And it's very typical George R. R. Martin, we think. So, Egrain, thank you so much for your work and input in this look at John, Liana and Rhaegar. It's been so great to have you on our show. Thanks for letting me ponder on my favourite subject. Good luck with Radio Westeros. Thanks and goodbye, Egrain. Bye. So thanks again to Egrain for joining us here. And now we're going to move on and have a short reading from Ned's Fever Dream. It's of the showdown with the Kingsguard at the Tower of Joy. For the record, we know that Rhaegar named the tower himself from Ned's own thoughts. It was said that Rhaegar had named that place the Tower of Joy, but for Ned it was a bitter memory. As mentioned earlier, this dream comes to him as he lays recovering from the wounds sustained in Jamie's ambush. But we do know that this is a dream that he's had before. There's a reference to it being an old dream in the first line, and then later he thinks, he did not think it omened well that he should dream that dream again after so many years. And finally, one other small detail that we learn following this dream, eight men died at the Tower of Joy, Exactly the number of men who died in the streets of King's Landing following Jamie's ambush. So perhaps there we have a small hint 
as to why this dream should come back to Ned at this point. And now here's the first half of Ned's Tower of Joy dream. He dreamt an old dream of three knights in white cloaks and a tower long fallen and Lyanna in her bed of blood. In the dream, his friends rode with him as they had in life. Proud Martin Cassell, Jory's father, faithful Theo Wool, Ethan Glover, who had been Brandon's squire, Sir Mark Riswell, soft of speech and gentle of heart, the Cranagman, Howland Reed, Lord Dustin on his great red stallion. Ned had known their faces as well as he knew his own once, but the years leech at a man's memories, even those he has vowed never to forget. In the dream, they were only shadows, grey wraiths on horses made of mist. They were seven facing three, in the dream as it had been in life. Yet these were no ordinary three. They waited before the round tower, the red mountains of Dorne at their backs, their white cloaks blowing in the wind. And these were no shadows, their faces burned clear, even now. Sir Arthur Dane, the sword of the morning, had a sad smile on his lips. The hilt of the great sword Don poked up over his right shoulder. Sir Oswell Went was on one knee, sharpening his blade with a whetstone. Across his white enameled helm, the black bat of his house spread its wings, and between them stood fierce old Sir Gerald Hightower, the White Bull, Lord Commander of the King's Guard. Okay, so we hope you enjoy that reading, and that passage is really packed with information about the events at the Tower of Joy. Yes, it is. In fact, much of what we know of the events surrounding John's proposed birth and Lyanna's death comes from Ned's fever dream. Right, and significantly, it's a dream that Ned's had many times before, going by the line, he dreamed an old dream. Yeah, these memories are very powerful for him, probably to the point of haunting him. A number of his close friends and associates were killed in that encounter, not to mention three knights whom he held in very high esteem. Yeah, he clearly did respect these knights. He says that they were no ordinary three, and at one time he tells Bran, the finest knight I ever saw was Sir Arthur Dane. Right, so following this passage comes a lengthy sequence in which Ned and the Three Kings card have a verbal exchange that many readers believe makes the case that Jon Snow is actually the legitimate son of Rhaegar and Lyanna. So this is quite a contentious issue within the fandom, even between believers of the RLJ theory. But we really wanted to look at it. So what we've done is outsource some research to a poster we like called Mountain Lion, who has provided some of the notes that we're going to use here. Yeah, so thanks to Mountain Lion, and his analysis uses text and logic to make the case. We're actually going to look at this sequence in short segments. So let's start with the first bit. I looked for you on the trident, Ned said to them. We were not there, Sir Gerald answered. Woe to the usurper if we had been, said Sir Oswell. So Ned knew that there were three Kingsguard present at the trident. He also knew that Sir Jamie Lannister had been in King's Landing during the battle. He makes it clear that he had expected to see these remaining three at the trident. Note that there is no surprise about the events on the Trident expressed by any of the three. Evidently, they were aware of the battle and its outcome. Yeah, exactly. And this passage also tells us that Robert is considered a usurper by these Kingsguard here, or at least by Sir Oswell Went. He implies that Robert couldn't have won the battle at the Trident if these three had been present, so you can clearly see where their loyalties lie. And now for the next segment. Here's Ned asking about the events after the Trident. 
When King's Landing fell, Sir Jamie slew your king with a golden sword, and I wondered where you were. Far away, Sir Gerald said, or Ares would yet sit the Iron Throne, and our false brother would burn in seven hells. I came down on Storm's End to lift the siege, Ned told them, and the Lords Tyrell and Redwine dipped their banners, and all their knights bent the knee to pledge us fealty. I was certain you would be among them. Our knees do not bend easily, said Sir Arthur Dane. So here Ned relays that King's Landing has fallen and King Ares is dead by Jamie's hand. Ned knows that the primary duty of the Kingsguard is to protect and defend the king. He wonders why it is that these three Kingsguard weren't with King Ares when King's Landing fell. Sir Gerald condemns Jamie as an oathbreaker and implies that one of these three would certainly have killed him had they been present. In this, he is expressing his support for Ares. Notice that he also makes it clear that when Jamie slew Ares, the three were too far away to react. Right, so this line makes it clear that Sir Gerald, at least, wasn't involved in any plotting against Ares. Next, Ned tells them that all remaining loyalists have surrendered to him and pledge fealty to Robert via Ned. He wonders why the last of the Kingsguard weren't with these forces. This appears to be an implicit invitation for the three to surrender to him right there. Yes, and in reply, Sir Arthur Dane speaks for the group and says that they won't surrender. It's worth noting, if you recall from the reading, that when Ned approached the tower, Sir Oswell Went is on his knee. Combine this fact with the Our Knees Do Not Bend line, and we have perhaps a subtle clue that the Kingsguard have already bent their knees at the tower before Ned arrives. Right, and so let's move on to the next passage. Sir Willem Derry is fled to Dragonstone with your queen and prince Viserys. I thought you might have sailed with him. Sir Willem is a good man and true, said Sir Oswell. But not of the King's Guard, Sir Gerald pointed out. The King's Guard does not flee. Then or now, said Sir Arthur, he donned his helm. We swore a vow, explained old Sir Gerald. So this is probably the densest passage, really probing the motivations for these three to be at that particular place at that time. Ned's just offered the Kingsguard the option of surrendering to him, which they rejected. So now he changes his tactic. We know that he holds the Kingsguard, especially these three, in high regard even years later. Yeah, he definitely does. He called them a shining example to the rest of the world. Yes, he did. And now, in what looks like an attempt to find some talking point that would lead to a solution, Ned tells them that their queen and prince have fled to Dragonstone without Kingsguard protection. Yeah, and perhaps this could be an opening for the Kingsguard to discuss a tactical withdrawal. It's really within Ned's capabilities as second-in-command to provide a safe passage for them. Right, and it might be in everyone's best interest at this time to allow them to go to Dragonstone to carry out their duties there. Yeah, it might be in everyone's best interest. Now, remember that Sir Willem Darry is a brother to Sir John Darry of the Kingsguard, and is also the Master of Arms at the Red Keep. He'd be very well known to these three, wouldn't he? Yes, he would. But the Lord Commander notes that Sir Willem is not Kingsguard. Thus, the Queen and Prince Viserys are not currently under Kingsguard protection. This seems odd, since as far as Ned knows, they're the only surviving Targaryens. That's right, and Sir Gerald would not have fled from King's Landing with the Queen and Prince. He would have probably stayed at the side of King Aerys. 
Yeah, the White Bull is stating that they would have chosen to stay with the king to defend him and the Red Keep rather than flee with the queen and prince. Since the primary duty of the king's guard is to protect and defend the king, they would choose to stay in the capital. And then Arthur agrees with this by saying, then or now. It appears that these three king's guard have decided that in the present, they have some obligation to stay at the tower. So I guess we have to imagine what conclusion Ned was coming to at that time. And what really seals it for me is that Sir Gerald cites the Kingsguard vow as the reason they must stay. It seems that he's decided that all three must remain at the tower rather than going to Dragonstone. And after all this language about staying with Ares rather than fling to Dragonstone, which is the then of Sir Arthur's statement, the logical assumption is that they wish to protect the king, which could be the now in Sir Arthur's statement. And logically speaking, Sir Gerald's decision to keep Arthur and Oswell with him only protects the king if the king is present at the tower. So what's interesting is that Ned knows that these men were honoring their king's guard vow. There can be no other vow that Ned is aware of. And he continues to think of these three as the epitome of honor and skill, a shining example for the world, even years later. Now let's look at the final passage. Ned's wraiths moved up beside him, with shadow swords in hand. They were seven against three. And now it begins, said Sir Arthur Dane, the sword of the morning. He unsheathed dawn and held it in both hands. The blade was pale as milk glass, alive with light. No, Ned said, with sadness in his voice. Now it ends. So it seems important to note that there's nothing to indicate any fatalism on the part of Arthur Dane. It appears Arthur expected to win, and we know only with Ned's hindsight that they did not. Yeah, so there's no indication here that this was a suicide mission from the King's Guard. Exactly. And so Ned knows the outcome years later, and he regrets they had to kill the three finest knights in the kingdom. If Lyanna had been kidnapped or mistreated while they were present... Ned probably wouldn't have been that favourable in his view of these men. So these three Kingsguard must surely be living up to their Kingsguard vow in order to gain Ned's great respect. Right. Ned's healthy respect must come from somewhere. And as fate has it, because the men were so honourable on both sides of this meeting, they were fated to fight to the bitter end for honour's sake. Yeah, exactly. They seem to have died as honourable men. So that's that, and we hope this analysis lays out some of the reasons why so many people believe that Jon Snow isn't just the child of Rhaegar and Lyanna, but the legitimate child. Right. We think there is something significant going on here, and of course, look forward to the day when we gain more insight from George on the subject. In the meantime, thanks again to Mountain Lion for providing us with his research here. Promise me Ned, his sister had whispered from her bed of blood. She had loved the scent of winter roses. Promise me Ned, promise me. So me and Lady Gwyn have had a close look at what Ned thinks of Rhaegar. And here's what we've realised in relation to the RLJ theory. There might be some clues here, we think. Right. Now, when Littlefinger takes Ned to Chitai's brothel to see Robert's youngest bastard child, Ned's internal thoughts as they ride away are very interesting. He thinks, 
For the first time in years, he found himself remembering Rhaegar Targaryen. Yeah, that is interesting since a close look shows that not only has Ned thought of Rhaegar recently, he thinks of him frequently. There are seven thoughts or conversations about Rhaegar in Ned's nine POV chapters to that point. So you've got to wonder, that's a kind of contradiction. What's going on here? Well, people have noted that Ned never has a negative thought about Rhaegar. This is used to support the idea that Ned knows Rhaegar was not the kidnapping rapist that Robert thinks he was. Right, let's take a look at some of Ned's thoughts about Rhaegar to see if we can get a better picture of how Ned views him. In game, when Ned and Robert are together in the Winterfell crypts visiting Lyanna's tomb, they have an exchange where Robert is still really full of hatred for Rhaegar at that point. On the other hand, Ned thinks about the death of the man who allegedly kidnapped and raped his sister with a kind of detachment almost. And this could be our first hint that there might be more to the Rhaegar story. Yeah, really. And later on, when Robert raises the issue of Daenerys Targaryen and her unborn child, Ned strongly objects to the murder of children, recalling Rhaegar's dead family. And for Ned, the murder of children was and is unspeakable. But Robert hasn't gotten over his hatred of all Targaryens. Yeah, he still really despises them. And it does seem clear from Ned's point of view that killing children far outweighs the crimes of Rhaegar. And this doesn't seem like an appropriate viewpoint for someone whose sister was kidnapped and raped. Exactly. And then the conversation continues to a discussion of Jaime being named Warden of the East. And Ned is really disturbed at placing so much power in the hands of one family that has shown itself to be without honor. He recalls the aftermath of the sack of King's Landing and the deaths of King Aerys and of Rhaegar's children. So basically what follows then is a kind of contrast between one view of honour and another. In Ned's view, the killing of children is the very height of dishonour for him. Then Robert, who thinks of Rhaegar as a rapist, urges him to ask Lyanna about honour. This leads Ned to recall the promise that she extracted from him. Robert clearly has a very different view of honour to Ned, and it's informed at least in part by his interpretation of the Rhaegar and Lyanna situation. Right. So now let's get back to Ned's meeting with Barra's mother, which leads to thoughts of Rhaegar, in particular this exchange. She says to him, Tell him when you see him, my lord, as it please you. Tell him how beautiful she is. I will, Ned promised her. That was his curse. Robert would swear undying love and forget them before evenfall, but Ned Stark kept his vows. He thought of the promises he'd made to Lyanna as she lay dying, and the price he'd paid to keep them. So here Ned is making a promise to a young mother regarding her child, and suspiciously, very suspiciously, it reminds him of the promises he made to his dying sister. All the way back in the crypts, he recalled that moment. Yes, this was his memory. Promise me, she had cried in a room that smelled of blood and roses. Promise me, Ned. The fever had taken her strength, and her voice had been faint as a whisper, but when he gave her his word, the fear had gone out of his sister's eyes. Ned remembered the way she had smiled then, how tightly her fingers had clutched his as she gave up her hold on life. 
So not only does the promise remind Ned of his sister, but the young girl's reaction here is highly evocative of Liana's. She smiled then, a smile so tremulous and sweet that it cut the heart right out of him. Riding through the rainy night, Ned saw Jon Snow's face in front of him, like a younger version of his own. If the gods frowned on bastards, he thought dully, why did they fill men with such lusts? So here, Ned's train of thought has gone from young girl with infant to promises to his dying sister and now to Jon Snow. It seems as though his anxiety over the fate of the infant Barra leads him to a thought of Jon Snow. And since he's just been thinking of his sister, this seems natural enough. But the fact that he's been thinking about the promises made to his sister seems to lead to the thought about bastards. In order to fulfill his promises to Lyanna, Ned has had to raise John as his own bastard, denying him something that is his by right and making him equal in status to this bastard daughter of a whore in King's Landing. This is part of the price that he's paid to keep his promise, and the reason he thinks of John in the context of bastards being frowned on by the gods. Right, and we should also note the phrase, Ned Stark kept his vows. The assertion by Ned that he's a man who keeps his vows is in contrast to the notion this passage is saying John is Ned's bastard. Since he's admitted to Robert that Jon Snow was born after his marriage to Caitlin, this could be a subtle hint that Ned has not broken his vows in any way. And by raising John as his own son, he's simply been fulfilling a vow made to his dying sister. Right. And finally, he comes to the thought we opened with. For the first time in years, he found himself remembering Rhaegar Targaryen. He wondered if Rhaegar had frequented brothels. Somehow, he thought not. Well, since we now know that Ned thinks of Rhaegar often, there must be some hidden explanation for this thought. Ned's thoughts about Rhaegar generally centre around his death and child slaying. So the difference could be here, for the first time in years, he allows his thoughts to go one step further and actually thinks about Rhaegar as John's father. Yeah, his unspoken thoughts have now gone from his sister to promises to Jon Snow to bastards and brothels and to Rhaegar Targaryen. And interestingly, we arrive at the conclusion that Rhaegar would not have frequented brothels. Right, and this means that Ned could be unconsciously allowing himself to think about Rhaegar as the father of his sister's child. He also compares him to Robert, who fathers bastards in brothels, and then he decides that Rhaegar just wouldn't behave this way. So surely if Ned believed that Rhaegar had fathered a bastard child with his sister, he wouldn't reach such a charitable conclusion. Yeah, it could be that in this passing thought we have a strong hint, as compelling as the scene from the Tower of Joy, that Ned is aware of John's legitimacy. Also, Ned's collective thoughts about Rhaegar support the notion that he bears no ill will for the dead prince. Yeah, it does seem that way. Okay, that's it for Ned and Rhaegar, and we'll be posting a quite lengthy essay on this subject covering all of Ned's thoughts about Rhaegar with a more in-depth analysis on our website. Right, so Ned might know a few things about John's parents, but according to the RLJ theory, one person who knows nothing is John himself.
Yeah, and John knowing nothing is something we're reminded of many times in the books. We counted 33 times the line, you know nothing, Jon Snow, comes up. Yeah, George really wants to keep reminding us that John knows nothing. And of course, this might be a sly nod to his secret heritage. Yeah, it could be. And he's told this by Mel Val Tormund, and it echoes around in his own mind too, of course, the person to deliver the line first, and also most often, is of course Egret. So, with Egret and John in mind, it's time for some music from the fandom. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's Joel Murray with his song All About Knowing Nothing, and it's called Jon Snow. You know nothing, 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 Jon Snow. Now, Let's get wild. 
was Joel Murray with his song Jon Snow. Joel has four tracks of a song on ice and fire music for you to listen to and we'll link to him on our website. Yeah, more great music from the fandom. Thank you, Joel, for letting us use it here. It's a nice song and lyrics there. It's very emotional and we're proud to have featured this song on our show. Okay, so let's move on. And we're going to talk about Ice and Fire, how this theme might be relevant to John and what the song of Ice and Fire might actually be. From there, we'll present an idea of why RLJ might be so important to the bigger picture of the story. Yeah, so let's take a look at Ice and Fire. This is obviously in the book's title, and it's a multi-layered central theme. The Ice and Fire motif might be especially relevant to John because of RLJ, which we're going to explore. First of all, we wanted to look at Danny's vision in the House of the Undying, the only time a song of ice and fire actually comes up, as well as when Danny later recalls this vision. Danny sees Rhaegar and Elia together. George has actually confirmed that it's Elia we see. So Elia is nursing baby Aegon, and Rhaegar says, he has a song. And then he goes on to state that his is the song of ice and fire. Right, and Rhaegar actually thinks Aegon is the prince that was promised here. Remember that Rhaegar is very interested in prophecies, but might have been wrong before. Reading something in the scrolls that suddenly made him want to be a warrior could indicate that he thought of himself as the prince that was promised, as Meister Aemon once did. Yeah, so Rhaegar might be making a mistake here, and given that he says there must be one more, presumably referring to a child... It's possible the Song of Ice and Fire might really be John's song. We don't want to talk about the prince that was promised too much here, but Rhaegar does relate the Song of Ice and Fire to this promised prince. As someone perhaps at the centre of a promise, as we've discussed, and might also be described as a prince, John seems like a strong candidate. Right. It's worth noting that the term prince can be used loosely. Um, Historically, it can be used to indicate any descendant of a sovereign. So John might fit here in the context of RLJ if Rhaegar and Lyanna married. Yeah, and so seeing if the song of ice and fire could relate to John, if RLJ is true, he'd be half Targaryen, a family linked to fire, obviously, and half Stark, a family associated with ice. We'll go in depth with this later, but let's look at what this song might actually be. It's really unclear if Rhaegar meant a literal song in the House of the Undying Vision. Elia asks if he will make a song for his child, and he replies that he already has one, the Song of Ice and Fire. But Rhaegar first states that he's the prince that was promised. Clearly this song is something influenced by the prophecy that he's read. Yeah, and the fact that a baby supposedly has this song, which could be a reference to some greater destiny read in prophecy, cast doubt on whether it's something literal or musical, doesn't make too much sense as a straightforward song. And when Danny wonders what the song is, Jorah replies that it's no song I've ever heard. So we've wondered if the Song of Ice and Fire might end up having several meanings, but our best guess on the central meaning is that it means war. So the Song of Ice and Fire could be the War of Ice and Fire. And here's how we got there. We went through the books looking at how the word song is used. Obviously, primarily, it's used for music or sounds. But a common context for song is repeatedly war or fighting. Right, so let's look at that with quotes. And here's a good one. Prince Rhaegar's prowess was unquestioned, but he seldom entered the lists. 
He never loved the Song of Swords the way that Robert did. So here's the Song of Swords with Rhaegar, and song means battle. And when the word song is used in this context, it's either related to Rhaegar or John. The first time we see John sword fighting with the Night's Watch in his POV, the very first line is, the courtyard rang to the Song of Swords. Then in Dance, there's more with John and the Night's Watch. Iron Emmett pulled off his battered helm. Was this some part of yield you could not comprehend, Lord Snow? Emmett was an amiable man, and he loved the Song of Swords. So that's coming from John again. Right. And again in Dance, we have this. Outside the armory, Iron Emmett was still urging on his charges in the yard. The Song of Steel on Steel awoke hunger in John. So there's a Song of Swords for Rhaegar and several for John, and we wanted to point out this context of song as fighting is only used when linked to Rhaegar and repeatedly John. It's not used like this for anyone else in the books, which we thought was quite interesting. Right. That's part of why we think it's possible that his is the battle of ice and fire, and it's referring to John. To reinforce this idea that song could mean battle or war here, remember that dance, another musical term, is used in the same way. Yeah, it is. Dance of the dragons essentially means war of the dragons. So perhaps a nice tie in there. Okay, so we want to talk further about the ice and fire connotations with John, if RLJ is true, and present an idea as to why the theory might be so central. First, we've prepared a very short rendition of the famous poem, Fire and Ice by Robert Frost, which George has said was a partial inspiration. Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if it had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction ice is also great and would suffice. Okay, that's Robert Frost's poem. And so let's talk about this ice and fire theme in so much as how it might relate to John and RLJ. One burning question about the RLJ theory is, why does it seem so central to these books? What is it about John that's so different? And why is having specifically Rhaegar and Lyanna as parents relevant? As we said, the Ice and Fire association with the Starks and Targs seems suspicious to us in this Song of Ice and Fire, and we want to explore this further. The current connotations to RLJ that John might have been born a king, for example, seem unsatisfying somehow, given that we expect the upcoming War for the Dawn to transcend titles, honors, and so on. And we've wondered if there could be a deeper meaning to RLJ. Yeah, we have, and this Ice and Fire theme might be the key. If RLJ is true, John would be the only character in the history of Westeros that we know of to be a product of direct union between these two great houses. The Ice and Fire Association as we know it, as in Targs are pyromaniacs who've ridden dragons and the Starks live in a cold place, seems quite superficial to us. Yes, it does. We're expecting the ice and fire theme to be attacked from every angle by George, as he does with other central themes like identity. So here's our idea concerning why the RLJ theory might be fundamental to the big picture and how it might tie in with the ice and fire motif. 
So, if George is to really explore the ice and fire theme as fully as possible, we think the deepest layer that he could go for is blood. Blood is really important in the books. It's very likely that Blood of the First Men alludes to blood mixed with the children of the forest blood, we think. Perhaps from when the humans grew close to the children many years ago. This union might be what gave humans wagging and green-seeing abilities. And this notion seems to be supported by Bloodraven here. Yes, he says to Bran, your blood makes you a green-seer. So that's one of many examples of blood seeming to be highly important in George's world. Thinking about John being a very pure dose of Targ and Stark blood, perhaps uniquely in the story, it's worth considering what that could possibly mean with regards to blood if there's something going on there at this most fundamental level that makes him different somehow. And looking at Targaryens, the first thing we really learn about their family is that they keep their bloodlines pure whenever they can, marrying sister to brother and so on. There might be a legitimate reason for doing this, or it could also be Targ arrogance, and George has written it to be ambiguous. And there's a theory going round that the Valyrians indulged in blood magic with dragon's blood, perhaps to control their dragons a bit better. Yes, and we've wondered about imbuing here, bathing in dragon's blood and magical ceremony, which is linked to European legend and other mythology. Right, so it might be possible that Targs could have literal blood of the dragon. The phrase blood of the dragon is used over and over, set against the notion of Targ arrogance, which creates this ambiguity and leaves the reader uncertain. But if you suspend your disbelief for a moment, this ambiguity is exactly what you'd expect from George. If he cultivates ambiguity, then he's able to hide things in plain sight, a central device for a mystery writer. Reading the Princess and the Queen novella, we really can't be sure if the Targ seeds had special blood enabling them to ride dragons. Again, George goes to great lengths to make this ambiguous. It's carefully cultivated to give doubt either way. Yeah, and there really isn't much of a literary payoff if Targs have nothing funky in their blood. Whereas if they have dragon's blood in their veins, like the first men might have children of the forest blood, the connotations strike right at the heart of the ice and fire theme. Dragons are fire made flesh, and so we have characters with good doses of fire in them. Right, and one of the first things Viserys says is, the fire is in our blood. He doesn't seem to know what he means by that. Perhaps it's a phrase that's been passed down for hundreds of years. Maybe the best evidence that Targs have something funky in their blood, and this is frequently overlooked, is their magical prophetic dreams. Forget they're called dragon dreams for a second, and focus on their prophetic qualities. These Targ dreams show the future, and they seem to be innate. Yes, they do. That's magical, and it's a family trait. Not all Targaryens get them, but crucially, when they do, it's the Targs with the purest line of Valyrian blood, as far as we know. This innate magical ability must have come from somewhere. It, it must have an origin. The characters we see who seem to be innately prophetic, i.e. it's not learned or as a result of drowning and so on, are green dreamers who might have gained this ability from their children of the forest, first men blood. So what's up with these prophetic targs? In the parallel, we have green dreamers innately prophetic due to a blood union with magical creatures. 
the children. And of course, dragons are magical too. The explanation that Targs have something strange and dragon-related in their blood seems plausible to us. In fact, it's the only explanation we can think of. That's it, we can't think of any other origin for these prophetic dreams. So, although it's a very divisive issue in the fandom, the notion of Targaryens having dragon's blood in their veins in this fantasy story seems quite plausible. As we said, the ambiguity and Targaryen arrogance could be a device to keep the reader unsure on purpose. Now, if Targs did have dragon blood, this would be really interesting for RLJ, because John, whose song might be ice and fire, would be a semi-embodiment of fire here. And one thing often written about RLJ is, why is it pertinent that Lyanna was the mother specifically? Why has George written it to be her? Well, if John is of fire via Rhaegar, you'd expect him to be of ice via Lyanna. The true parallel to dragons is, of course, the Others. We've looked at the Others very closely with the tales of the Long Night and so on. The first thing to mention is that they have human qualities in the books. They show some kind of chivalry in the game prologue, and they're elegant beings. Yeah, they do seem to be quite human in a way. And some interesting information from Old Nan, who George says is very accurate with her stories. First from John. She used to say that there were wildlings who would lay with others to birth half-human children. And this is from The Long Night. And then again from Bran. Their women lay with others in The Long Night to sire terrible half-human children. So twice we're told that the others have bred with humans and produced offspring. Given others are ice-made flesh, this means that there might be humans with ice in their blood. The story of the Night's King, this might be a hint that there were indeed human-other hybrids. The Night's King ended up performing others' magic, raising the dead, ice magic. And he was named by Old Nan as a Stark. Yeah, the Night's King was a Stark, according to Old Nan, and the only other person to have performed ice magic when he built the wall was Brandon the Builder, again a Stark. So information is a bit foggy here, and again there's this ambiguity, but we think it's possible these are hints to Starks having others' blood in their veins from the era of the Long Night. And if so, RLJ begins to make a lot of sense now. Yeah, it really does. John would have a good dose of others and dragon's blood embodying both ice and fire. Perhaps the only character through history to have this relatively strong dose of both magical blood types. That's what might be significant about RLJ and John. That's what would make him so different and important to the story with this end of days scenario looming over Westeros. Right, and also remember that there's talk of an ice dragon through the story. And lots of people think this is simply a reference to John, as we do. Our idea here would give John, as the ice dragon, new depths. And it's worth noting there's an ice dragon constellation and it has a shining bright blue eye, a bit like the others. Yeah, and that's not the only possible link to John and blue eyes reminiscent of the others. Ned's Tower of Joy Dream in game shows us a storm of rose petals blew across a blood-streaked sky as blue as the eyes of death. So a very unusual placement of blue eyes of death 
right next to RLJ hints there. There's also the pale blue connection, the pale blue roses we discussed as possibly representing John. Well, pale blue is linked with the others right from the very first prologue and continues that way several times through the text. And for anyone that thinks John could be Azura High, there's also something we've noticed that Bonero prophecies. He says Azora High will do something that sounds just like others' magic. He's actually talking about Danny here, but of course he might be wrong and inadvertently be talking about John. He says, Death itself will bend its knee, and all those who die fighting in her cause shall be reborn. Yeah, so death bending the knee, resurrection, that sounds like others' magic. Azor High is prophesied to use fire magic with Lightbringer and ice magic with this quote here. It's interesting. Yeah, this could be the manifestation. In this upcoming time of war and magic that's coming to the wall inevitably, John might be the only person to be able to harness both ice and fire magic. For example, he might have the latent ability to raise the dead and ride dragons. It would make him a serious warrior, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. And it would also have pervasive symbolic implications central to the theme of ice and fire. Yeah. So that's our idea, just to throw something out there. Whatever happens with John, he does seem to be central to the greatest war in the planet's history. And like any kind of hero in George's story, we'd expect him to get his hands dirty if he's going to make an impact in the upcoming War for the Dawn. That's John as the embodiment of ice and fire. And remembering who this author is and what he's done to us already, we do expect some kind of serious and deep-rooted revelation regarding the character in the middle of his main character mystery. RLJ denoting dragon's blood and other's blood combining might seem beyond the pale for some, but George might enjoy some of the dynamics here, such as revealing that the unspoken heroes, the Starks, and the antagonists, uh, the nasty others, might have a few things in common. With ice in his blood and fire in his blood, caught in the middle of an apocalyptic war between the two, it would make sense that his was the song of ice and fire. And with this theory, that concludes our look at R plus L equals J. So, we hope you liked our presentation of the RLJ theory, with so much of that coming from the collective research of the A Song of Ice and Fire fandom, with a few fresh ideas of our own thrown in there, as we like to do in every episode. Yeah, and we mentioned that the RLJ thread at Westeros.org has been very influential to both of us in our understanding of the theory and all its evidence. So, happy 100th thread to all the regulars there. And Lady Gwyn. You are a regular there yourself, aren't you? Yes, I am. Uh, how many threads of the hundred have you posted in? Well, I have to confess, I worked out it's about 63, I think. 63 threads in, and that's consecutive, isn't it? I'm guessing. Yeah, all in a row. I'm an addict. You are an RLJ <laughs> addict, aren't you? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> thanks so much to Egrain for joining us, and also to Mountain Lion for the research notes. And next time, we will be overlapping somewhat and providing an episode all about Jon Snow. Yes, we're working on that right now. What do we have lined up? We have the burning Jon Snow issue 
a look at his fate at the end of A Dance with Dragons. So that would be a big one. I think we're going to offer a very close analysis at what happens to him there. We believe there's enough clues to piece things together and we'll be sharing our thoughts about Jon Snow's fate. And we'll also look at leadership in Jon's arc and overlapping with RLJ we have an idea what Jon's birth name might have been. Oh and also a look at his romantic side with Egret. Yes, all of that and a lot more. So finally, thanks to George R. R. Martin for Westeros. Thanks to Nine Inch Nails for letting me remix and use elements of their music. Thanks to Kynos for the harp textures, and also to Joel Murray for the Jon Snow song. All links, licensing, and credits are in our MP3 tag and on our website, which is radioesteros.com. Yeah, come and take a look if you haven't already. You can see our accompanying essays for each episode. And from there, you can reach all of our social media and so on. Oh, and if you want to shoot us an email for any reason, it's radiowesteros at gmail.com. So we hope you had fun and we'll see you next time for a look at Jon Snow. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.